Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to cover Matthew 15 through 17 and Mark 7 through 9. We're going to discuss in Matthew 15, Jesus's interchange with the Pharisees. They're going to come at him regarding things with tradition. And then we're going to discuss the feeding of the 4,000, as opposed to the feeding of the 5,000, which we discussed last week. And then we'll talk about Peter at Caesarea Philippi. And when Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Peter will respond. Following this event, they'll experience the Savior being transfigured before them on what is commonly called the Mount of Transfiguration. And then we'll conclude this podcast talking about a young child that is possessed by a demon and the casting out of that individual. Now, in the midst of all that, there are lots of other things happening in these chapters. I mean, Matthew 15 through 17 and Mark 7 through 9 is so rich, and there are so many other things happening. We will mention them, but those are the main five things that we're going to discuss and spend the bulk of our time going through. So let's start in Matthew chapter 15 with this idea of tradition. Boy, do members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it seems like religious people in general certainly love tradition. And we struggle sometimes when things go against our tradition. So we begin this chapter of Matthew 15 with the scribes and the Pharisees pushing back against Jesus saying, why don't your disciples follow the tradition of the elders. They had a tradition about washing their hands before they eat. Now, religious people in general have so many things that become traditions. And Jesus in his day, prophets, seers, and revelators in our day, so many people come to try and point out, you've gone too far with your tradition. This tradition is now interfering with your worship of the Savior. Prophets, seers, and revelators have said that in general conference. Don't let your culture interfere with your worship. Joseph Smith said it this way. He said, I have tried for a number of years to get the minds of the saints prepared to receive the things of God, but we frequently see some of them, after suffering all they have for the work of God, fly to pieces like glass as soon as anything comes that is contrary to their traditions. They cannot stand the fire at all. How many will be able to abide a celestial law and go through and receive their exaltation? I am unable to say, as many are called, but few are chosen. So let Jesus' comments in this week's Come Follow Me be an invitation to question some of our traditions. Can I just get you thinking about a couple If I were to say, bless this food, that it will, and stop right there, how many of you are going to complete the rest of that sentence? And so I ask, has that become a tradition? Or is that a meaningful statement you ask of the Lord? As I search the scriptures, I don't find record of Jesus blessing the food because it was cursed and the curse had to be lifted in order to eat it. I find him blessing bread when he was about to perform a miracle with it. But 
this idea of blessing food and not being able to eat of it until we've blessed it, has that become a tradition? I know that the right hand is the covenant hand, and it is most appropriate to partake of the sacrament with the right hand. But I, for one, was one of those that was slapped as a child by my sweet grandmother when I reached for the sacrament with my left hand. Are we doing things because they're habit? Or are we doing things because that's how we worship the Savior? That's how he's going to begin Matthew chapter 15. I like that. I, I really do see this as Jesus being more concerned with their spiritual cleanliness rather than external rituals. All that being said, I'm a big fan of hand washing. So verse two to me still holds. And part of it is because I was raised by a, a mother that was a nurse and she knew about infection control. So I'm a huge fan of washing hands. But I really think he's saying to them, you guys are neglecting the weightier matters of the law, such as justice and mercy and faithfulness, while focusing on the minor details. And so verse 20 these are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. In other words, what's in your heart? And with that, that's going to move the story forward. Jesus is then going to go fence in verse 21, and it says that he departs into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Now, we're going to go to Mark's account of this experience. Because Mark adds a few more destinations that really cause us to raise our eyebrows, and what's Jesus doing? Yeah. If you go to Mark 7, verse 31, this is what it says. Again, departing from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, he came unto the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coast of the Decapolis. It wouldn't be a straight line, right, Mike? No, this is we're, we're definitely not going in a straight line. To kind of paint you a picture, now we put a map in the show notes as well that you can see, but just know that Tyre is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea north of Galilee. Sidon is about 22 miles north of Tyre, and it says that Jesus is going to the Sea of Galilee, which is southeast of Sidon. So instead of going southeast from Tyre, he goes 22 miles north to Sidon, and then it says he's going to go to Galilee through the midst of the Decapolis. Now, the Decapolis were these 10 cities, and sometimes there's 14 and, you know, potato, potato, but they're, it's called the Decapolis. And so perhaps in this time period, there were 10 of them. They were cities that were Gentile cities by and large. Now, there were some mixed population, but the bulk of those cities are going to be on the east of the Jordan River. The one place that's west is Beit Shean, or it's called Sikthopolis. And so Jesus goes north from Tyre. He goes east, way east of Galilee, to the ten cities of the Gentiles, the Decapolis. So people look at this verse 31 of him doing this, and there's lots of different interpretations. One say that maybe Mark doesn't know his geography. That's one option. I don't necessarily like that one. Another interpretation of this, verse 31, is that maybe Jesus' goal wasn't efficiency. Maybe his point was, I have people I need to see, and I'm not in a hurry. The way I read it is I see Jesus is looking at people and not necessarily worrying about getting to certain places at certain times. Jesus is going anyway, but the straight way to the Sea of Galilee. 
He's going all these other places. And if you're interested, check it out in the show notes. We have a map. But the main point is he's going to go and he's going to help this guy who has an impediment in his speech. So in chapter 7 of Mark, verse 32, it says that they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they beseeched him to put his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude and he put his fingers into his ears and he spit and he touched his tongue. And he looked up into heaven and he sighed and he said unto him, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened and the string of his tongue was loosed and he spake plain and he charged him that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much more a great deal they published it. So Jesus oftentimes would tell people, hey, don't tell anyone. Now what's interesting is we have this Greek word in Mark 7 verse 32 and it's Mogalalon. And that word, it's a combination of a couple words. Mogus means difficulty, and laleo is to speak. And so he had a difficulty with speaking. And that word really doesn't appear except for one other place. It appears in the Greek translation of Isaiah 35, verse 6. And I just want to read this because I think Mark is actually invoking Isaiah, and he's doing it with his Greek. Isaiah 35 verse 5 and 6 read as follows. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. The idea is that the tongue of the mute will be mighty. And that's the only other place really where that word's popping up in the Greek rendition of the Old Testament. And I think what Mark is doing is he's seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of Isaiah 35. Now, in Mark 7, 33, and he does it also in Mark 8, what's going on with him spitting? We wanted to make sure that we at least talked about this. In the ancient world, healers operated in all kinds of ways. And one of the methods that they would use is they would use saliva or spittle to heal individuals. Sometimes physicians would actually use this to treat wounds or other ailments. And so as a healer in the ancient world, Jesus may have used this for similar reasons. Remember, he was a man that lived in culture. Section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 24, the Lord says, I'm going to speak unto men after the manner of their language, according to their understanding. And Jesus was God incarnate, and he was speaking to these individuals in a way that they could understand. And that may have been what he used because that's what they could relate with. While the use of spittle may seem kind of strange to us today, it is important to understand that in the ancient world, healers often use a variety of methods to heal people. I mean, they did all kinds of things. They would use herbs. Sometimes they would even use bloodletting and those kinds of things. It's likely that Jesus used spittle as a way to demonstrate his power as a healer and that this was a way that they could understand who he was. It may also have symbolic significance because actually spittle is associated with purity. How do we know this? Well, we read about this in the Old Testament. You see, a person with a skin disease was considered unclean, and if they spat on somebody, it would make that person unclean. And so by using his spittle to heal people, what if Jesus was also bestowing holiness? What if that was a way that they could understand? And so if we see that in the culture of their day, then maybe that will make more sense. 
Now, Mark puts this before, but Matthew puts this after, so let's jump to Matthew's account and talk about this little interchange with a woman of Canaan. This is an incredible little exchange with a woman who was not of his faith, who is expressing an incredible amount of faith. I remind you that Jesus has showed in many cases a willingness to extend the gospel beyond the immediate house of Israel right there in front of him. We've seen that centurions, we've seen Romans, we'll see that with Peter. So this story is a puzzle for a lot of people, and it can be taken offensively if you think he's calling this woman a dog. Yeah, so if you go, so in Matthew 15, we do have Jesus making a difficult statement. A woman of Canaan, a Syrophoenician woman, comes from the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Now it's Matthew 15, 21 and 22. And we read that Jesus isn't answering her in verse 23. So the disciples say, Send her away. And he says in verse 24, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshiped him and said, Lord, help me. And he answered and he said, it is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. And she said, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Now, that phrase where she's called one of the dogs, that word is a derogatory term. Many in Jesus's culture did refer to Gentiles or non-Jews as dogs. That did happen. And one scholar says that a dog was one of the harshest insults in antiquity. Now, others suggest that this term of dog could have been used in an affectionate way as a term of endearment. Now, I don't agree with that, but there are some that say that. And still others argue that Jesus was essentially testing her faith, challenging her to demonstrate her persistence and trust in him. And that very well may have been the case. But regardless of whatever interpretation you take, it is clear, one thing is clear, and that's that Jesus granted her her request. And then he commended her for her faith. He said, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. This to me suggests that Jesus's statement wasn't intended to demean her or dismiss her, but rather it could be seen as a teaching moment for both the woman as well as Jesus's disciples, many of which probably, let's face it, they probably had prejudiced views of Gentiles, especially because that was their culture, that was their upbringing. And the statements regarding Gentiles that were made in Scripture at this time kind of reflected that worldview. Now, that's going to shift. It's not going to shift until after the resurrection, and we'll get to it when we get to the book of Acts, where Peter receives a revelation that the gospel message of Jesus is for everyone. Now, my take as I read this stuff, I say, okay, then why is he going to Decapolis? Decapolis is this area where it's very much Gentile country, and Jesus goes there. And I think he's trying to show his disciples, hey, listen, I'm going to eat with these people. I'm going to break bread with them, and I'm going to teach them things. And it's going to cause a lot of problems. There's going to be a lot of Jews that are going to say things like, what are you doing? You're doing it wrong. You can't be the Messiah. Those guys are outsiders. And so I think Jesus is doing it slow enough so that they can kind of grasp what he's trying to do. So notice in Matthew 15, he is in the Decapolis. 
Uh, he's in these Gentile cities. Now, with the feeding of the 5,000, which we talked about last time, at least according to Luke 9, 10 through 14, that was near Bethsaida, which is kind of there on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. But this feeding, this miraculous feeding of the 4,000, is going to be in the region of the Decapolis. This is essentially going to be on the east side of Jordan. We're outside of Jewish country, essentially. That's where this is going to take place. So it's a different feeding with a different number. I think some people try to conflate the two feedings and make it one, but the way I read the Gospels, it seems clear that they're trying to draw that distinction and say, no, these are two separate feedings. And by the way, not all four Gospel writers are going to talk about this. This is only being discussed by Matthew and Mark, not by John or Luke. And even the text kind of sends that message, because in verse 30 of Matthew 15, great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them, insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, and maimed to be whole, and lame to be walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. So why would the Jews be wondering? They would have known about him. He would have been well-known back home. So clearly, he is not home. And he's with a totally different people who have never seen this miraculous side of him. So I love that Jesus goes into Decapolis. He goes into foreign country, and he does the same miracles. He heals them, and then he miraculously feeds them just like he did with the Jews. I know they're not going to get that message, but you can see Jesus clearly moving in that direction, that the gospel is for all people, and you need to take it out. So he he repeats many of those miracles. I would like to point out from the miracle, once again, verse 32, he is moved by compassion to feed them. He wants to feed them. Don't send them away fasting, lest they faint in the way. And secondly, I love his standard procedure is, what do you have? Lord, I need a blessing. Okay, what do you have? He did that all throughout the Old Testament. He's doing it now. Give me what you have, and then I'll make up the difference. This time, they had seven loaves and a few little fishes. Okay, that's enough. With that offering, I can perform a miracle. But that tendency is always... When you seek the Lord's help, he's going to turn around and around and say, well, what do you have? What can you offer? What did you bring me? So allow me to just kind of bring that into the come follow me setting. Sometimes we go to come follow me and say, Lord, edify me, teach me, fill my cup. And he turns right around and says, well, what did you bring me? I didn't bring you much, Lord. Well, then I can't help you much. But if we t- he turns around and says, what did you bring me? And says, Lord, I, I've brought some time and my heart, I've brought something to come follow me because I want your help to get more out of it. That's when the miracle occurs. So I love that he turns around and says, what do you have? How many loaves have ye? And even though they didn't have many, they gave all that they had. And once again, verse 37, they ate, were filled, and took up the leftovers, seven baskets full. So he's repeating a miracle in a strange land as if to say these people are still wonderful and we need to do that. Yeah. If you go to uh, verse 37, it reads, they did all eat and they were all filled and they took up the broken meat which was left, seven baskets full. 
and they that did eat were 4,000 men besides women and children. So once again, we can look at the story and say, this is a, a great example of Jesus filling them, and then there's leftover. And so he sent the multitude away, and he took a ship, and he came to the coast of Magdala. So he's going to leave the Decapolis, and he's headed back to the Sea of Galilee. And later, in Matthew 16, verses 5 through 12, and Mark 8, 13 through 21, Jesus is going to push against their ideas and say, how is it that you do not understand? And he is going to reiterate the feeding of the 5,000 and the 12 baskets and the feeding of the 4,000 and the seven baskets that were taken up and challenge his disciples to see if they could interpret what the meaning was. And the authors don't tell us what the meaning is. I love that as a teaching moaning for you and I. He does not include in the text his answer or their answer to the question. Therefore, I think by extension, he's asking us to answer the question, do you understand the message of the feeding of the 5,000? Did you get the meaning of the feeding of the 4,000? I love that the text does not allow them to answer their questions. Of course, I, I want to inject my thoughts. I don't know if I'm right, but... I'd love to just inject my thoughts here. Since we're here, we're looking at the beginning of Matthew 16, verses 5 through 12, and he basically does say, do you not understand? That's verse 9. And then he asks them the questions, how many baskets did you gather? And then in the Mark account, he says, how is it that you cannot understand? And there's lots of interpretations. People from Augustine to Origen, some of the early Christians had different views, but I kind of see this as the four, that number kind of representing the earth, and the 4,000 kind of represents Jesus taking the gospel to the whole earth, to the Gentile nations. And then the seven baskets is, hey, it's complete. We've gathered them. But prior to the four, we have the five. And that can be seen, at least in my mind's eye, the covenant Jews that are receiving the gospel. And then they gather 12 baskets, kind of indicative of the 12 tribes. So we go to the Jews first, but then we go and we gather the whole world. I really like that as a type, but it doesn't mean I'm right. I'm just looking at this going, this is really interesting. But just know that for hundreds of years, great Christian thinkers have pondered this. Like, why doesn't Jesus answer it? And they've pondered what it can mean. And we put a couple of interpretations for you in the show notes if you're interested. So after that conversation about the interpretation of these two feedings, we read in verse 13 that Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. This is a place that in modern day is called Banias. There was a temple to Pan at this location. And to kind of paint a picture, you are at the foot of Mount Hermon, and it's the tallest peak around. And there was this temple to Pan, which was in front of a a cave, essentially, that was out of the ground. And in this cave was water. And so this water was behind the temple. Now, this location is not on a coast. It's not on a beach. And if you go there today, all that's left is the cave. There's a beautiful spring there at Banias, and the temple's not there. But you can see the exposed wall of the rock of the mountain of Mount Hermon, and you can see these niches carved into the wall where we believe that there were different uh, statues for different gods that were put there. But it was a whole complex at the time that Jesus lived. And of course, we have the temple to Pan. And in the context of this, Jesus is going to ask his disciples, who am I? And we also need to note that 
the Caesars were often deified upon death or maybe in life, but they were sometimes deified and considered gods. And so in the midst of all these ideas about who who's Pan and who is Caesar and, and what are these gods, Jesus is asking his disciples the fundamental question, which is, who do you say that I am? Now, uh, there seems to be an indication that you could take an offering for the Temple of Pan if you were going to do something that was maybe a risky venture. You could take an offering, typically a goat, and you would sacrifice this animal, and then you would put the animal in the water behind the temple. And depending on what, who you read, and there's differences of opinion here, but one opinion is that you would put the animal in the water, and then if the, if the sacrificial animal sank, that the God had accepted it. And so... Perhaps, I'm just throwing this out here, perhaps when Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, Peter, but my Father which is in heaven, perhaps in the context of this grotto of Pan, where Jesus is standing right there where they're offering flesh and blood to get answers, Jesus is kind of thumbing his nose at some of these pagan traditions. In other words, Jesus is using their tools and their ways of getting revelation to say, no, it's not that way. It's my Father which is in heaven. And that's the source of truth. And so this is a big deal, knowing that they're in this place where there's a temple complex and lots of different things are going on with respect to pagan worship, I think is essential. One more thing I want to say about this is in the Enoch material, and we put this in the show notes, chapter 6 through 9 of this Enoch material is this story of these rebellious spirits that are kind of cast out of heaven, and they swear by the throat to take over God's kingdom, and they're making their swearing and their, their ordinance, as it were, where they covenant with each other as these dark spirits to overthrow God's kingdom, they're making it right here on Hermon. And so the way I read the story, as, as I read Matthew 16, I read Jesus as a war general claiming his kingdom right here at ground zero where the enemies have claimed that they're going to take over. So I also see this as a story of Jesus as the cosmic king claiming his throne. So I just wanted to kind of lay that out there as far as the place where we are. Um, before we get any further, and I'm just going to say it, I think Hermon is clearly the Mount of Transfiguration just because of all the things going on in Enoch. So with all that as a background, let's get into the text. Now, the first question is significant. Whom say ye that I am? Every one of us have to answer that question. Every one of us has to account, whom say ye that he is? But the question is, do you take your bearings from what other people say? Is that your source of truth? And again, I've got to remind you of Lehi's dream. There are four groups of people in Lehi's dream. Two make it to the tree and two don't. The two that make it to the tree, one group stays and one group doesn't stay. And the difference between them is that they care what others say. Listen to Lehi's description of that group that doesn't stay at the tree. In 1 Nephi 8, verse 25, after they had partaken of the fruit of the tree, they cast their eyes about. They're looking at their neighbors. What is it that you think? They cast their eyes about as if they were ashamed. I think that's so significant 
that they are taking their bearings from other people. They're letting other people determine what they choose to believe. Nephi will interpret for his father later on in chapter 8. He says, regarding the people who stayed at the tree, he says they heeded them not. And then regarding the people who don't stay at the tree, he says, for as many as heeded them had fallen away. Now, that's significant because one of the groups wandered away. But the group that heeded the world, that looked to see what other people thought about their beliefs, they fell away. So I find it very significant that the Savior's first question is, whom do men say that I am? I don't think he cared what the answers were. I don't think he was curious to know what people were saying about him. I think his point is, where do you get your bearings about who I am and the role I play in your life? How do you define Jesus? Is it through your own personal experiences, or is it because of what people say? And I think that's critical. Peter now represents all of us and says, thou art the Christ. This is what I have come to believe. And notice that Jesus clarifies that he got that by revelation. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. We proclaim boldly that you must come to understand who Jesus is by personal revelation. Get your bearings about who Jesus is from him, from his teachings, from your interaction with him, and from prayer and pondering and asking the Father. I remind you that this dispensation began with the Father pointing to the Son, saying, this is my Son, hear him. And that advice has not changed. I really like this, Bryce, from Elder Hales, where he said, Every person in the world at some point in his eternal progression is one day going to have to come to the moment of truth when he must answer the question, what think ye of Christ? And then later he says, what think ye of Christ and whom say ye that he is? Many Christians profess to follow Jesus Christ, but they do not know him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Many profess to be Christians and yet do not believe that Jesus is the literal Son of God, indeed, the eldest Son of God the Father. Men are willing to follow some of his teachings, but do not recognize the divine eternal purpose and the significance of his life to all mankind. And then he goes on, but essentially, I think all of us have to be like Peter and come to this conclusion. In other words, we can read this story in Matthew 16 as our story and our invitation. Yeah. Now, what happens next is vital to understand that Jesus is granting the keys of the kingdom. He is going to establish a church. He says to Peter, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, which is both a play on Peter's name and the position that Peter holds and the aforementioned revelation that he just talked about, upon this rock... I will build my church. Let us proclaim boldly from the rooftops that Jesus has established a church. 
and it is built upon his rock, and that it was restored in our day. And then he says in verse 19, I will give unto thee, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Peter held the keys of the kingdom. Now, he's going to get more keys in the next chapter on the Mount of Transfigurations, but Peter is the key holder. Yeah. Jesus' statement in 16 verse 18, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, is often interpreted to mean that Peter was the foundation upon which the church was built, meaning that he has the keys of the kingdom and that it represents his role as the leader, representing the Lord. These keys, as we are aware, are the right and power to preside. A, a really important verse is section 107 of the Doctrine and Covenants. There's a verse in there, verse 79, where the Lord says that the first presidency has the power to decide upon difficult matters, and it's as if the kingdom of God is as a man who travels in a far country, and he leaves and he designates the steward to run the kingdom. That's kind of how I see Peter. Peter is the steward with the keys. And today we have a first presidency, and we have a president of the church who sits in that position. Now, many times in artwork, sculpturists portray Peter as holding keys in his hand. Let me share an experience that Boyd K. Packer had with Spencer W. Kimball that made a profound impact on him. Elder Packer said, in 1976, following a conference in Copenhagen, Denmark, President Spencer W. Kimball invited us to a small church to see the statues of Christ and the Twelve Apostles by Bertel Torvaldsen. The Christus stands in an alcove beyond the altar. Standing in order along the sides of the chapel are the statues of the Twelve, with Paul replacing Judas Iscariot. President Kimball told the elderly caretaker that at the very time Torvaldson was creating those beautiful statues in Denmark, a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ was taking place in America with apostles and prophets receiving authority from those who held it anciently. Gathering those present closer to him, he said to the caretaker, we are living apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And pointing to Elder Pinnegar, he said, here is a 70 like those spoken of in the New Testament. We were standing near the statue of Peter, whom the sculpture depicted holding keys in his hand, symbolic of the keys of the kingdom. President Kimball said, we hold the real keys as Peter did, and we use them every day. Then came an experience I will never forget. President Kimball, this gentle prophet, turned to President Johann Bethen of the Copenhagen Stake and in a commanding voice said, I want you to tell every prelate in Denmark that they do not hold the keys. I hold the keys. There came to me that witness known to Latter-day Saints, but difficult to describe to one who has not experienced it. A light, a power coursing through one's very soul. I knew that in very fact. Here stood the living prophet who held the keys. I love that experience, and I think about it often every time I read Matthew chapter 16. 
Today, there is a man who holds those very keys and exercises them every day. Yeah. Now, the idea that the rock is revelation is commonly taught, that revelation is the rock, but I also see other ways to interpret this. And so we put some really interesting commentary from a a fellow named Gregor McCarty. He wrote a book called Eight Myths of the Great Apostasy. I highly recommend it. I think it's well worth reading. And he just kind of gets into the nuance of the rock can mean many things. And so along those lines, I want to just share a couple other ideas because I really do see Jesus a lot of times using words that could mean multiple things. And it doesn't have to be either or sometimes it can just be and the rock could be this and this not necessarily this or this and so in one sense perhaps it is revelation but in another sense perhaps it is peter we have that wordplay going on with his name now i do understand that the roman catholic church has taught that peter is the rock upon which the church is built frankly this is just me gospel according to mike day I'm okay with that position. I'm okay with the wordplay of Peter's name playing a role here because Peter was the individual who was to be in charge when the Savior left. And then also think about this. We're standing at a rock. You're literally in front of a rock. And so I can see Jesus pointing to this rock, Mount Hermon, which I believe that's where we're going in the next chapter. I know that some people say Mount Tabor, and I, you know, I don't know, I wasn't there, but I think this is happening here because that rock is kind of the gateway. It's ground zero where the enemies of light have claimed the world and Jesus is claiming it at the rock. And so I like that. I like it as Peter, but I also like the rock as Jesus. And Joseph F. Smith combined that concept that Jesus is the rock, and he kind of combines it with also the idea of revelation. And we put his quote in the show notes if you're interested in that. Some see this as the rock as the confession of Christ. When Peter confesses you are the Christ, Jesus could be saying, that's it. That's the rock. If you can say that and you can believe it, now we're on to something. That's ground zero for faith and beginning of understanding who I am. Another example of the rock could be the gospel message. For example, in the 33rd section of the Doctrine and Covenants, we read this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for a remission of sins, and be baptized even in water, and then cometh the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. Verily I say unto you, this is my gospel. And remember that they shall have faith in me, or they can in no wise be saved. And upon this rock I will build my church. Yea, upon this rock you are built. And if you continue, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. That's Doctrine and Covenants 33, 11 through 13. In my reading of that verse, what if that is also the rock? The, the message of the gospel that Jesus is inviting us to come to him and that through repentance, through his atonement, being baptized by water and by the Holy Ghost, by the baptism of fire, I can get on that journey and return home. And then finally, what if it's a combination of all these ideas? What if it's all of them or a combination of them? I'm open to all of these ideas. I see this, especially in connection with Peter's name, that there's something going on here. One scholar put it this way. He said, Peter and all the other apostles after him who proclaim that Jesus is the real king, they are the solid foundation on which the church was built. They are the foundation. And I, and I really like that. I really like to take 
the collective wisdom of all the apostles and all the people that have spoken about Jesus and as their words have resonated with my soul, it's given me a rock whereby I can say, okay, this is what I know, and this is where I'm going to move forward. So notice what happens next. Right after the statement from the Savior that he's going to bestow the keys upon Peter, he learns a valuable lesson, and I think it's a lesson we all need to learn. Jesus proclaims in Matthew 16, verse 21, from that time forth began Jesus to shew unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Now, Peter says something that I think is natural for us to do. Then don't do it, Lord. Verse 22, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Now, I know Peter was worried about his safety and didn't want him to be hurt and didn't want him to be killed, and he was thinking about protecting him. But Peter was also saying to Jesus, you don't have to do this, Lord. You don't have to go to Gethsemane. You don't have to give your life. There's another way. And in that sense, Peter represents sometimes well-intending people in our own lives who for our comfort and our safety sometimes say, you don't have to do the hard thing the gospel requires of you. You don't have to go to Jerusalem and face the Jews. And Jesus says to Peter, at the suggestion that he alter his path and not complete his mission, Jesus says to Peter, probably the biggest rebuke of all time, get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Sometimes we are swayed by people who care more about our physical well-being than about our spiritual well-being. In this moment, Peter represents everyone in your life who would say, don't do the hard things. And we ought to say to them kindly but lovingly, maybe under our breath, maybe inside our own souls, get thee behind me. I have a mission, and I'm going to do it. Whether it causes me some pain or not, I am going to complete my mission. I think there's a great lesson. So after that, Jesus says to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, Joseph Smith adds this clarification. Now for a man to take up his cross is to deny himself all ungodliness and every worldly lust and to keep my commandments. If we're going to follow Christ, we have to give up all the worldliness that sometimes gets in the way. That's what it means to take up my cross. It is to let go of celestial and terrestrial things and follow Christ, even if it's all the way through Gethsemane. Jesus continues, break not my commandments to save your life, for whosoever will save his life in this world shall lose it in the world to come. And whosoever will lose his life in this world for my sake shall find it in the world to come. Therefore, forsake the world 
and save your souls. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? Yeah. So Peter says, hey, don't go to Jerusalem and get crucified. Let's have the kingdom without the cross. Well, Jesus says there is no kingdom without the cross. And by the way, same for you. You have to take up a cross. But I really like this story. It's a really short story of this blind man here. If you go to Mark chapter 8, right before they get to Caesarea Philippi in verse 27, on the way to Bethsaida, that's verse 22 of Mark 8, we read that a blind man comes to Jesus and besought him to touch him. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, remember we talked about that back with Mark 7, 33, Jesus put his hands on him and asked him if he saw. And he looked up and he said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And when he had sent him away to his house, Jesus said, neither go into the town nor tell anybody in the town. To me, this part right here in Mark 8, and then the next bit where Jesus talks to his disciples and says, who do men say that I am, is a turning point in Mark's gospel. Prior to this, the disciples don't really get who he is. Mike, what I love about this is the natural process of being healed by degrees. Sometimes we get the idea in the New Testament that Jesus speaks and the pain goes away completely or that the sickness is healed completely. But many times the reality of my situation is that healing takes time. Healing comes over a period of time. I'm healed by degrees. And that's why I love this story. And it only appears in Mark. You're not going to find it in Matthew, Luke, or John. And I love that, that Mark included it to say Jesus healed a man by degrees. Step number one, well, he sees, but he kind of sees blurrily. And then step number two, he sees more clearly. Now, tell me that's not a very real experience in our daily lives, that healing comes quite often over time and by degrees. I love this miracle, Mike. I, I do too. I really do also see it as, like you said, it's, it's kind of like a gradual seeing, and I see the apostles kind of gradually getting who Jesus is. I mean, on one hand, we have Mark eight twenty nine, but then on the other hand... We have Mark 8, 32, and it's the same person. In both cases, Peter's talking, and Peter has to learn. And I like that because I feel like I'm kind of that way. I've got to learn, and I keep making mistakes. And in this miracle where he says, I see men as trees walking, I really like this as having some symbolic significance. Now, it may not. I'm open to that. But it could be symbolic. You see... Trees are often symbolic of people. I mean, you've got Alma 32, verses 28 through 30, where there's this extended metaphor talking about faith being compared to a seed that's planted in my heart, and that tree grows in me. You have Psalm 1, verse 3, where people are like trees planted by streams of water. There's so many. I mean, you have Jeremiah 17, same thing, verses 7 and 8, people like trees planted by water. We have this beautiful passage in Isaiah 61, for those that mourn in Zion, where the Lord says, I'll trade you beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, 
the garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness. What's interesting is the ancient king in antiquity is the custodian and the caretaker of the primordial tree of life. There's a lot of work done by uh, Weidengren on this, and we link this in the show notes if this is interesting to you. I find it fascinating, the idea that the staff in antiquity, whether it's Moses' staff or whatnot, even I, I kind of see this in, in the artwork of Samuel the Lamanite, right? The staff from the tree of life. Jesus is the tree of life. and It goes on and on. We Like I said, there's a lot of this stuff in the show notes, but the authors of the New Testament, specifically Luke, in his writing in Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 10, and he wrote extensively about Jesus having died on the tree, or the tree being a symbol for the divine king. We read some of that in John 15. And so I like that. I, in other words, he gradually sees this individual. So whether it's people, as all the things we've discussed, or whether it's Jesus as the symbol for the tree, his sight comes gradually. And then in verse 30 of Mark chapter 8, Jesus commands the man to tell no man. And sometimes people read that and they're troubled and they wonder, well, why? And there's a lot of interpretations. I, you know, for years I, I would read that and go, well, why? Why don't you have him tell anybody? Because, you know, in John chapter 9, the individuals are told that they're to go tell. And so I don't know, but I think there's some interesting ideas that may help. Some have suggested that Jesus' command to tell no man is part of what's called the messianic secret in the Gospel of Mark. Now, that's a theme that nobody knows in Mark who Jesus is until the end. And that messianic secret is kind of woven throughout the text. And we link some stuff in the show notes if that's interesting to you. Um, Another possible interpretation is that Jesus is trying to promote humility amongst his followers. Hey, you guys be humble. This isn't about the miracles. Another concept that I think fits is this idea of divine timing. Maybe Jesus knew that the time was not right to make it known, which is really connected to this idea of many of these miracles are private. And because they're private, it's as if Jesus is saying, hey, this is just for you. This is just between me and you. You're not to share this. And then this is another interpretation that I find fascinating. What if this is actually a fulfillment of prophecy? You see, if you read Matthew 12, verses 16 through 19, Matthew quotes Isaiah. And he says that Jesus healed many people and ordered them not to make it known so that the prophecy of Isaiah might be fulfilled. And what's he talking about? Well, it's in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He shall not strive, neither shall he cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. Matthew cites that passage in Isaiah 42 and makes that connection. And so I think that perhaps some or all or maybe a combination of these could be in effect when he's telling people not to say. But at the end of the day, what if every single time he says this, it's individual based on that circumstance? Now, what's sad, Mike, is there's many places in the New Testament where he tells them that, don't tell anyone, and they go out and do. Um, Mark chapter 1 says that, remember that man full of leprosy who cried out, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean? 
In finishing that story, Jesus straightly charged him and sent him away, saying, See thou say nothing to any man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest. But he went out and began to publish it much and to blaze abroad the matter. So he didn't follow the Lord's instructions. And we might think, well, well, isn't that good? I mean, Jesus was being humble and told them not to talk about it, but they went out and talked about it. Isn't that good? Another example is Matthew chapter 9, the two men that were blind, and they cried, thou son of David, have mercy on us. He said, Are you, do you believe I'm able to do this? Yes. According to thy faith, be it unto thee. And their eyes were opened. Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. But they, when he departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. So we might admire that defiance of his instructions. We might think, oh, well, Jesus told me to keep quiet, but it really is in his best interest if I testify of him. I love this statement from Frederick Farrar, who said, there are some who have admired their disobedience and have attributed it to the enthusiasm of gratitude and admiration. But was it not rather the enthusiasm of a blatant wonder, the vulgarity of a chattering boast? Did not the holy fire of devotion, which a hallowed silence must have kept alive upon the altar of their hearts, die away in the mere blaze of empty rumor? Did not he know best? Would not obedience have been better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams? Yes, it is possible to deceive ourselves. It is possible to offer to Christ a seeming service which disobeys his inmost precepts, to grieve him under the guise of honoring him by vain repetitions and empty genuflections and bitter intolerance and irreverent familiarity and the hollow simulacrum of a dead devotion. Better, far better, to serve him by doing the things he said than by a seeming zeal, often false in exact proportion to its obtrusiveness for the glory of his name. These disobedient babblers who talk so much of him did but offer him the dishonoring service of a double heart. Their violation of his commandments served only to hinder his usefulness, to trouble his spirit, and to precipitate his death. Ouch. Yeah. I really like that quote. And it really makes me think about the way that Dallas Jenkins has portrayed it in the popular television show called The Chosen. And that's kind of how I see it. There are individuals who are hearing about his miracles because they're not keeping quiet. And there might be something going on here with divine timing and humility and maybe even fulfilling Isaiah and his prophecy. I, I really like the way it's portrayed. And I can also see the challenge. You know, you live in a town your whole life and you're blind and you come home and now you can see word's going to spread. It's going to happen. And there's nothing you can do about it. And so I think Jesus is essentially trying to like slow it down a little bit. And does it work? Well, I think the word spreads. So with that, we're going to shift and we're going to go towards the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, just know that we don't know where this is. Early church historian Eusebius in 320, he wrote that 
either it's Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon. He put both as possible sites. There were others, for example, Cyril of Jerusalem. He was a bishop in Jerusalem, and in 348 AD, he basically says, hey, listen, it's Mount Tabor. Uh, Many people look at it as Mount Hermon. For me, I see it as a natural progression. We're at the Temple of Pan, and that's at the base of Mount Hermon, and I'm kind of like channeling Enoch chapter 6 through 9. I read that and I say, okay, they're going to walk up that hill, and they're going to go to the top of the mountain, and it's the highest peak, and that's kind of where I take it. I just say, hey, I, I think it's Mount Hermon. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter where it is. What matters is what happened, and yet we have a fragmentary account. We don't have the whole account as to what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, thankfully, we have modern-day apostles who've kind of helped us fill in the gaps, and we're going to look at some of the things they say about this as well. And not only that, Mike, but we have a modern-day Mount of Transfiguration. So the Kirtland Temple was built to restore keys. Some of the same people that appear to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration appear in the Kirtland Temple for the same purposes. So one of the things that adds to our understanding of what was happening is what happened in our day in the Kirtland Temple when Moses comes and Elijah comes and restores essential keys for us to do the work that we've been asked to do in the latter days. So we're going to add that to what we know. They head up to this mountain. Now, I would make sure you make the connection between Peter's pronouncement of faith in chapter 16 and what he was allowed to see in 17. You will never have the experience of Peter on the mountain until that faith is tested when he says, whom do ye say that I am? Peter's pronouncement in 16 was a prerequisite. And now that he's passed that test, thou art the Christ, I know it. I have a testimony. I have a witness. And John chapter 6, I'm not going away. Where would I go? Now he comes up and he is allowed to see with spiritual eyes what he testified of with his words. So Peter, James, and John are taken up and have this temple experience where Jesus transfigures and is shown in his full glory. They see that he is, in fact, the Christ. They see that glory. They feel that glory. But there's no way they get there without that proclamation in a darker day of, I know that thou art the Christ. So I love that connection between 16 and 17. When they get there, I love just a play on words here. In verse 4, Peter says to Jesus, it is good for us to be here. I would invite you to draw a few lines in your scriptures. First of all, back to verse 2. It is good to be where the face of Jesus shines. It is good to be there. Number two, I would draw an arrow back to verse three. It is good to be where prophets are. And number three, I would draw a line to the next verse in verse five. It is good to be where you can hear the voice of God. I just love those connections, and that's something very applicable, where Peter cries out, it is good to be here to make those connections. They were seeing his face shine. They were with Moses and Elias and the prophets, and they heard the voice of the Father speaking. That's where it's good to be. 
the way I read this is I do see Jesus in his full glory as the Christ, but also as God. He is Jehovah of the Old Testament, the Lord of the universe or the cosmos, as John's going to call him. And so they hear these voices. They hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That's verse 5. They also see Moses and Elias talking with him. And by the way, Elias is the Greek rendition of Elijah. So by my count, we have Heavenly Father, that's in verse 5. We have Jesus in his glorified state, that's Matthew 17, 2. We have Moses and Elijah. I'm going to say the Holy Ghost is there. We also have another Elias or restorer there who should come and restore all things. That's in the Joseph Smith translation of Matthew 17, verse 14. Let me read 13 and 14. Jesus says, but I say unto you, who is Elias? Behold, this is Elias, whom I send to prepare the way before me. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist, and also of another who should come and restore all things as it was written by the prophets. And this is kind of how I read it. And like I said, this is fragmentary. I don't think we have the whole story, but I really like this commentary from Joseph Fielding Smith. He is saying that these individuals, Peter, James, and John, are receiving their endowment at this time. And this is what he says. He says, I'm convinced in my own mind that when the Savior took the three disciples up on the mount, which is spoken of as the Mount of Transfiguration, he there gave unto them the ordinances that pertain to the house of the Lord, and that they were there endowed. That was the only place they could go. That place became holy and sacred for the rites of salvation, which were performed on that occasion. Now, he doesn't say it here, but what I will add here is, I think a big part of them going there for this experience is because they were outsiders with respect to the temple in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem was being run by people that should not have been doing what they were doing. And to me, this is very similar to reading Lehi and his story in 1 Nephi 8 and 1 Nephi 11. And the way I read that, when Lehi talks about this vision of coming to the tree of life, that's the true temple. And the temple in Jerusalem in Lehi's day was corrupted. And so the Lord will make do with what he will make do with. And in this sense, it's the top of a mountain. I would say the mountain of Hermon, where Jesus is claiming the space that the forces of darkness have claimed in the Enoch material. Jesus is saying, no, I'm the captain. I'm in charge. This is my kingdom, and I'm claiming it. Now, with all that in mind, there's just a lot we don't know about this event. This is Elder McConkie, where he says, even Latter-day Revelation does not set forth the full account. And until men attain to a higher state of spiritual understanding than they now enjoy, they will continue to see through a glass darkly and to know only in part the visionary experiences. And so I, I say, yeah, that's probably where I am on this. But I really do agree with Bryce here. I think we can take the revelations of the restoration, specifically section 109 and section 110 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and we can read what the Lord's doing with Joseph in Kirtland, and we could probably use that as a lens by which to read this material here in Matthew 17. And so if that's our lens, and if we're reading it that way, here are some options. What if these individuals are giving them keys to do the work? For example, Moses could perhaps be giving them the keys to do the work for the gathering of Israel, and Elijah could be giving them the keys 
to do work for the dead. Now, I understand that work for the dead is not being performed prior to Jesus' atonement, but after his atonement, I think we need to give space for the early Christians doing this, especially when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When we read that, especially verse 29, it seems like Paul's talking about some work for the dead that was performed, and yet... The historical evidence of that has been lost to us. And it's not till Nauvoo when Joseph Smith restores that doctrine and teaches that to the saints in Nauvoo. So I'm open to that interpretation. This idea that these men, Peter, James, and John, are privy to a special revelation. They see Jesus as a glorified being, so they have to be transfigured. They have to be changed to endure the presence, and they hear the voice of the Father, and they receive keys. I know it doesn't say they're receiving keys here, but when we look at these individuals here in the text, and then we use modern-day revelation as a lens whereby to read it, I think it invites that interpretation. Now, coming down from the mountain was very symbolic. They were up with the Father. They saw Jesus in all his glory. They communed with prophets. And then they come down to kind of a chaotic scene, very symbolic. And what was going on is that there was a father who had a son possessed of a devil. And that devil was doing horrible things to this little boy. And he took his son to the disciples and asked them to cast out the evil spirit, and they couldn't. So now comes Jesus down, and the father turns to him. And this is a beautiful little scene with a father pleading for the life of his son. Now, Mike and I haven't really addressed the evil spirits that have manifested themselves this year in the New Testament. We wanted to just kind of combine them into one discussion. There are some doctrines we need to address. For example, these are pre-mortal spirits that were cast out with Satan to this earth and did not go through the veil. Therefore, when they recognize Jesus and acknowledge who Jesus is, they are acknowledging exactly what happened in pre-mortal life when Jehovah was chosen as Redeemer and Savior and Lucifer wasn't. They were present for that meeting. And then they were kicked out and sent to this earth, not going through the veil. Now, just a total side note, if they remember Jesus from pre-mortal life, they remember you. I think you need to be aware that you are on the devil's radar. He knows who you are from pre-mortal life. He knows what you were foreordained to do, and you don't even know that. And he's coming after you. But I want to testify, and we're going to share some quotations, that you have power over all of these devils. That's why I think we address these. That's why Jesus is going to address it. That's why Moses addressed it at the beginning of the Old Testament. And Joseph Smith addressed it at the beginning of the Restoration. You have complete power over these devils. I really like this quote by Joseph Smith where he says, The great principle of happiness consists in having a body. The devil has no body, and herein is his punishment. He is pleased when he can obtain the tabernacle of a man, and when cast out by the Savior, he asks to go into the herd of swine, showing that he would prefer a swine's body to having none. All beings who have bodies have power over those who have not. The devil has no power over us. 
only as we permit him. The moment we revolt against anything which comes from God, the devil takes power. I think in that quote, Joseph Smith is explaining some of the ideas that Bryce is discussing in the sense that we don't need to worry, but we need to acknowledge that he does exist, that he does have followers, as has been stated, that left the pre-earth life. And I think that's the context of that statement that's found in Mark 5. In Mark 5, verse 9, Jesus is asking this unclean spirit, what is your name? And the spirit answers, my name is Legion, for we are many. And essentially what I deduce out of this is that there's multiple spirits that are trying to possess this individual. And so Jesus is going to cast out Legion or these multiple spirits into these herd of swine. And that's kind of the context of what's going on in Mark 5 and also in Luke 8. And Matthew 8, and I want to throw out one thing that they say in Matthew 8, when they recognize Jehovah, they say to him in verse 29, what have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? That's a fascinating phrase. Are you here to torment us before the time? They know what their end is going to be. They know how this story ends, but it's not today. And so they're kind of chiding him saying, hey, today's not the day you kick us out into outer darkness. Today is still our day. And so I think that's fascinating that they know their time limit. In Revelation chapter 12, especially in the Joseph Smith translation version of it, it says, And after these things, I heard another voice saying, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, yea, and they who dwell upon the islands of the sea. For the devil is come down to you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. So I think they know their time is limited, and that's just a fascinating comment. Are you here to torment us before it's time? You know, Bryce, another interesting insight that we read in the New Testament narrative, and I'm just going to throw out a couple examples, but there are times in the New Testament when the devils know who Jesus is, and they even testify and believe that Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus basically tells them to shut up. If you go to Mark chapter 1, verse 24, they say, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? So they identify him, and then they say, I know who thou art, the Holy One of God. And then Mark one twenty five reads, Jesus rebuked him, saying, hold thy peace and come out of him. In essence, don't speak, just come out of him. And then later in Mark one thirty four, we read, he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. And Bryce, I think that goes along with what you were talking about, how in the pre of life, these individuals that rebelled, that joined forces with the adversary and rebelled against God and were cast out of heaven, as it were, know who Jesus is. Because remember, the Son of Man is preexistent. Everyone in the pre of life knows who he is, including the devils. Any time in the New Testament when you find reference to Jesus casting out a devil or what the devil is doing to that person, I would make a big long list of things that the devil will do to you if you let him in. Now, let's be clear. We have all power over him, but once you let him in, you will be subject to him. And what will he do to you? What does the devil do? Let me just throw out a few. In Luke chapter 8, verse 27, that's Luke's account of the, of the legion that was in the man that come out into the swine. 
But notice what the devil will do to you. Verse 27, this man possessed of the devils wear no clothes. Now, for me, that's very significant because clothes are a covering. The devil wants to strip you of your covering. Not only does he want to strip you of your fig leaves that you're using to cover yourselves, because that's embarrassment. He wants us to be naked and ashamed before the world. But he also wants to strip us of the covering of the atonement, the coats of skins that God offers us. The next one, neither abode in any house. The devil wants to rip you from your home. He wants you to be homeless. He wants you to dwell in the tombs. When they enter the swine, they ran violently and were choked. The devil would cause you to run violently and to choke you. In the episode we're covering now about the father and his son, the father tells Jesus that the devil takes him and tears him and pines him away. Those are descriptive words. That's exactly what the devil will do if you allow him in. So every time you find an episode with a devil, make a note of those words. That's a terrifying list if you make it and realize this is what the devil will do once you allow him in. Now, a couple Book of Mormon commentaries that are worth mentioning. Captain Moroni will say to Zarahemna in Alma 44.4, Now ye see that this is the true faith of God. Yea, ye see that God will support and keep and preserve us. So long as we are faithful unto him and unto our faith and our religion, and never will the Lord suffer that we shall be destroyed, except we should fall into transgression and deny our faith. Satan cannot enter me, but if I let him in, he's coming in full force. Now, in chapter 46, when the great war begins with Amalekiah, Moroni will say again, Surely God shall not suffer that we who are despised because we take upon us the name of Christ shall be trodden down and destroyed until we bring it upon us by our transgressions. So there's a dual problem here. Number one is as long as I keep my covenants, Satan has no power over me. The moment Joseph Smith exerted his effort to call upon God, the light repelled the darkness. We have total control over all devils. But here's the thing the Book of Mormon teaches as well. Once you let the devil in, once the Nephites lost control of their fortified cities, it will cost them dearly to win them back. Winning back our own fortified cities is very difficult. Now, I can keep Satan out, but once he enters... Winning back that fortified city is going to cost me dearly. And that's why you see all those words that we just described on that horrifying list, that he will tear you, he will strip you, he will choke you. Because once you let him in, he's not going out without a fight. Now, having addressed the devil that the boy has, let's go back to this very tender story about a father who is desperately trying to help his son, he took him to the apostles, and the apostles were not able to cast out the devil. So now he turns to Jesus. A desperate father turns to Jesus, pleading for his son's help. And this is a beautiful story. So I'm going to use Mark's account. When the father comes down, Jesus asks, how long ago 
since this came unto him, he says, of a child. Oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, regarding that very thing, Elder Holland now says, this man's initial conviction by his own admission was limited, but he has an urgent, emphatic desire on behalf of his only child. We are told that is good enough for a beginning. Even if you can no more than desire to believe, Alma declares, let this desire work in you even until ye believe. With no other hope remaining, this father asserts what faith he has and pleads with the Savior of the world. If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I can hardly read those words without weeping, says Elder Holland. The plural pronoun us is obviously used intentionally. This man is saying, in effect, our whole family is pleading. Our struggle never ceases. We are exhausted. Our son falls into the water. He falls into the fire. He is continually in danger, and we are continually afraid. We don't know where else to turn. Can you help us? We will be grateful for anything, a partial blessing, a glimmer of hope. Some small lifting of the burden carried by this boy's mother every day of her life. Elder Holland continues, If thou canst do anything spoken by the Father, comes back to him, If thou canst believe, spoken by the Master. What the Father then says, I believe, is one of the most beautiful phrases that comes from the New Testament. Straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. That phrase is so significant in my world. We are battered. We are beaten over the head with people who are trying to question our faith and cause us to question. They throw questions at us. They throw doubts at us. There are so many people who raise issues in church history or in the lives of leading members of the church or past presidents, and their whole goal is to destroy faith. And that's the water I swim in with the youth of the church who are hearing these reports and wondering. And this Father's words are the solution. Lord, I believe Help thou mine unbelief. Elder Holland, with this story as a backdrop, makes several observations. I just want to read his first observation. He says, observation number one regarding this account is that when facing the challenge of faith, the father asserts his strength first and only then acknowledges his limitation. His initial declaration is affirmative and without hesitation, Lord, I believe. I would say to all who wish for more faith, remember this man. In moments of fear or doubt or troubling times, hold the ground you have already won, even if that ground is limited. 
In the growth we are all to experience in mortality, the spiritual equivalent of this boy's affliction or this parent's desperation is going to come to all of us. This is my own interjection. Did you hear what he said? We're all going to have a need to say what that father said. There will always be doubts or concerns or something coming at us. Now Elder Holland continues. When those moments come and issues surface, the resolution of which is not immediately forthcoming, hold fast to what you already know and stand strong until additional knowledge comes. That phrase from the Father has become one of my absolute favorite statements in the Scriptures. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. I can't tell you how many times in my life I have uttered that same prayer and held on to the faith that I had, even though it was limited and acknowledge that there was a lot of things I didn't understand and that in other areas my faith was very limited, but I'm holding firm on what I believe. Lord, I believe. Now, help me with my doubts and my fears and my concerns. Help thou mine unbelief. May we all take that stand. Excellent. With that, we thank you for listening. We will see you next week when we cover Matthew chapter 18 and Luke chapter 10. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.